O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A missionary in Paraguay tells a story of an experience he had. He said this, while I was serving in Paraguay, a Maca Indian named Rafael came to sit on my porch and I was eating and went out to see what he wanted. He responded, Ham Henik Met. Again, I asked what I could do for him, but the answer was the same. I understood what he was saying, but not its significance. What he was saying was, I don't want anything. I have just come near. I later shared the incident with a local veteran missionary, and he explained that it was Raphael's way of honoring me. He really didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit on my porch. He found satisfaction and pleasure just being near me. What brings you here, my child? The Lord asks. Ham Henek Met. I just want to be with you and sit on your porch. Doesn't that reveal a true heart of worship? See, God is inviting us into his presence through this psalm, not because we deserve to be there, but because he loves us and he knows that it is when we behold him in worship that our deepest needs are met. That is the deepest need of our hearts, according to Scripture. So our psalm this morning is about worship, and I want us to see three things here this morning. Number one, who we are to worship. Number two, why we are to worship. And number three, how we are to worship. So who we are to worship, why we are to worship, and how we are to worship. So first, who we are to worship. Well, the psalm tells us that we're to worship God. In fact, it's calling the entire world to worship God. Why is it calling everyone to worship God? Well, there's this implication in verse 3, and you might have to sit on it for a minute to look at it and see it. 
But there's this implication in verse 3 that everyone is worshiping something. It says in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So the Lord is a great God, capital G, and a great King above all gods, lowercase g. So it says that the Lord is above all gods. Does this mean that there are other gods? Well, no, not literally. There really aren't. The Bible goes to lengths, uh, long lengths to talk about how other gods are no gods at all. So there's not literally other gods, but the strong implication is that people bow down to all kinds of things. People invent gods. It's no surprise. I talk about it all the time. So people, what do they bow down to? They bow down to things that they think will save them. And everybody's trying to be saved from something. Saved from hopelessness. Saved from loneliness. Saved from suffering. Saved from broken relationships. Saved from sickness. Saved from meaninglessness. We could go on and on and on. People feel all kinds of things and they want to be saved from it. They want to get out of it. But what the psalm is telling us is that nothing but the Lord God alone can save. The end of verse 1, it says, He is the rock of our salvation. Only God can save. And here's the kicker. Whatever you think will save you is what you worship. That's what you bow before. In his book, Addiction and Virtue, Ken Dunnington tells this story. Several years ago, a friend who had worked his way through graduate school as a paramedic told me about one of his more grisly experiences on the job. He received an anonymous call reporting a heroin addict who was on the verge of death in an abandoned apartment building. When my friend got to the apartment, the man was huddled in a corner, shivering and unresponsive, surrounded by piles of rotten trash, used syringes, lighters, spoons, all the paraphernalia of heroin addiction. When I asked what that was like, my friend related that it was terrifying, but that he also thought it was probably the first time he fully understood what worship looks like. For all sin is, as idolatry is essentially counterfeit worship. Having a job is a great thing. Being challenged in your work is wonderful. Overcoming difficulties and being successful in your work is one of the blessings of God. But when your work becomes the motivating force in your life, the thing that you think will save you, that's when things get skewed. You move from being a hard worker to being an, a workaholic. Your life begins to be out of balance. Your, your family becomes secondary. Your joys and sorrows all begin to be work-related. If you're successful at work, you have a hard time not wanting to take the credit for it. And if you're unsuccessful at work, you fall into despair. That's because your work has taken an inordinate position, but it can never save you. Being a parent is a wonderful thing. 
There are few things that are better. Seeing your kids grow and mature and be successful is so great. Being proud of your kids is good and it's right. Having joy in their successes and being sorrowful in their struggles is a normal and natural thing for a parent because we love our kids. But when the success of your kids becomes the motivating factor in your life, when it becomes the thing that will save you, that your life is dictated by what is going on with your kids, then things begin to change. Suddenly your well-being is wrapped up in how well they do. You begin to pressure your kids to do what you want. You might even become overbearing. You struggle with deep fear when you perceive they're not on a right path. And so you apply more pressure. And that only serves to alienate them. Making your kids your savior won't work. It won't work. They can't possibly measure up to that. Your well-being cannot depend on your kids. These are some of the ways that we take good things and we make them the thing that I've got to have to be happy. We could do a million of them. You would have to decide for yourself what yours is. It's the thing that causes you elation when it's good and devastation when it's bad. It's the thing we can't live without and we bow down before them as readily as the ancient Israelites bowed down to Baal. So the psalm is telling us that there is only one that can save us. There is only one rock of our salvation and he is the Lord God, the one called yad heh vav Yahweh, God. He's the only one. So point number two, why should we worship him? Wendy Kaminer is an avowed agnostic who has authored a, a number of books. And she was interviewed by Books and Culture, which is a website and a podcast they entitled the interview, The Trials of Being Agnostic, A Conversation with Skeptic Wendy Kaminer. And in the interview, she expresses her discomfort with religious beliefs. This is what she says. Apart from the comfort I might find in religious belief, when I think about the question, does God exist? I put it in the category of things I can't worry about. Questions I can't know the answer to. My feeling is that even if God does exist, it is really not my job to worry about him. If God exists, he's going to exist whether or not I believe in him. He'll be fine without me. Something that greatly bothers me about public religiosity is the mandate to worship. I don't have a lot of respect for the view of God as some authority figure who wants you to come and kneel before him every week. There's this sense that you are to go to your church or your synagogue or your mosque or whatever it is that you go, to, that it is that you go to and in some way abase yourself before the Lord. That seems to me to be such a demeaning way of seeing God, such an expression of human vanity. When human beings imagine God, they imagine a king. They imagine a flawed human being who needs to be worshiped. 
With all due respect to Miss Kaminer, our psalm completely disagrees with her. There are two ways, there are two ways that it disagrees with her. The first one is in verses three to five. Three to five. Here we are. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So he is a great God. In this psalm, it tells us it's because he's the creator. So what Miss Kamina has actually missed is who God actually is, according to the Bible. So for to believe the biblical story, what it is telling us is that God actually is great. And the reason it gives is that he is the creator of all that is. Now, if he is actually the creator of all that is, then her description of God is wanting. He's not some flawed human being. He's actually the greatest being in existence. That's the picture that the Bible is painting of God. And the reason people don't want to acknowledge that is because everyone is trying to be great on their own. That's why there's so many pseudo-saviors out there. Everyone is reaching for what they think will bring them maximum good and maximum greatness. Promote yourself because nobody else is going to promote you. In 1715, King Louis XIV of France died after he had reigned for 72 years. And he called himself the Great, of course. And he was the monarch who made the famous statement, I am the state. And his court was the most magnificent in all of Europe, and his funeral was unbelievably spectacular. And as his body lay in a golden coffin, orders were given that the cathedral should be dimly lit with only one special candle set above the coffin to dramatize his greatness. And at the memorial service, thousands waited in hushed silence. Then Bishop Marcion began to speak, and slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle, and he said, only God is great. See, if Louis XIV had actually been great, he could have controlled creation, and he wouldn't have died. He could have been the one large and in charge. See, this is a constant theme of the Bible. Only God is great. Who else but the greatest being alive could create such a complex and beautiful universe? And I could have shown you lots of things here about the universe, and you know a lot of them. But who who but greatness could create such a complex and beautiful universe? So God is great. That's one reason why we worship him. Number two comes from verse seven. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You know, does, does that not? So we have the greatness of the creator, but suddenly it's personal. He's our God. 
We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. He's a personal God who wants relationship. That's not the tyrant that's been described who needs people just so his ego can be stroked. See, not at all. We are the people of his pasture. There's no more intimate picture than the shepherd and his sheep. Sheep are stupid animals, and the shepherd looks out for them all the time. He's the one who cares for them. He leads them to green grass and sweet water. He protects them from evil, who walks with them, even in the shadows and in difficult places and in the valleys where there's danger. There's hardly, this is hardly the evil God that's been described. But see, it's way more than just being a shepherd. This is a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus Christ put himself in harm's way for the sake of his people. So I love action movies. I love the ones, the corny ones. I love the one where the guy is larger than life, where he can't be defeated by anything. He wins every fight. He shoots everybody. He kills everybody. He wins at the end. Those are great action movies for me. I know you probably hate that. My wife hates action movies, but... Uh, but I love them. <laughs> See, we want our hero to conquer his enemies. But here's what's so different about this story. Yes, the hero conquers in the end. But this is a story about the God of the universe, the creator of everything, who gives up his glory and his royal crown to become one of his creatures. And then he lets them take him and crucify him. And he is punished so that we never have to be. That is greatness. That is beyond greatness. Why would he do that? Because it's the only way that people who have worshipped everything under the sun can have a way back to God the Father. All idolatry and sin needs to be punished. And so Jesus stands in the gap and takes the punishment for those who will run to him. So we can call God an egotist or a worship monger or any other thing you want, but it doesn't square with a God who endured suffering for his people. This God is truly great, and he is our God. So what does that mean for us? How are we supposed to worship him? Well, there are three ways that I think that we are being instructed to worship him in this psalm. And it's actually the pattern that we try to follow on Sunday morning here in our worship service. So the first one comes from verses 1 and 2. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with him, to him with songs of praise. So twice, have you noticed it says twice in those verses that we are to make a joyful noise. And I looked up what that means. And it literally means... He's calling us to shout. It's not a quiet endeavor. He calls us to shout. 
He's not talking about individual worship here. He's talking about corporate worship where we come together. And this is not a quiet endeavor, as I said. We're actually to shout because we're so overcome with his greatness and his nearness, with his transcendence and with his imminence. He is greater than anything, but he's also present and he's near and we're to be overcome and we're to shout This has always been the argument of the worship wars. Had a conversation with someone who had written a book called In Reverence and Awe. So are we to come in reverence and awe? Absolutely we are. Because he's transcendent. He's far above us. But brothers and sisters, we can't leave this out. We come with a shout of praise because he is the great God and he's imminent. He's our God. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. Victory in Jesus is not a, a quiet endeavor, shall we say. We try to present praise, praise to God. But then there's the second thing we try to do. comes from verse 6. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So worship has the connotation of getting down. So three times it says it here. Worship, bow down, let us kneel. These are all things where we recognize something. So after we're done shouting, then we realize something. We recognize his greatness. This is why we confess our sins every Sunday. Besides the fact that Jesus calls us to confess our sins in the Lord's Prayer, it's one of the elements of the Lord's Prayer. So it's something we're to do on a regular basis. But this is why we do it on Sunday morning. This is why I confess before I preach to you. Because we recognize his greatness and our impossibility of being anything great at all. If anything's going to happen, he is going to have to do it. So we confess our sins every Sunday. And then there's the third thing, and this one's more complicated. This comes from verses 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. This is, this is difficult. So what happened at Massa? Let's just take it apart a little bit. What happened, Massa is the same place, by the way. Uh, they actually refer to, the, the, there are two different words used for what happened there, testing and strife. What happened in Massa? They came and they complained because they had no water. It wasn't just here that they complained. They complained for the entire 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness. What's interesting is it, Ann and I were talking yesterday about this and the fact that their clothes never wore out and their shoes never wore out and they always got manna every day and you're thinking, 
I would have never done that. I would have never complained, right? <laughs> and then we think we probably do the exact same thing when God has done such great things for us. But so they complain the entire time. So what are they doing? Essentially, what they're doing is negating God's goodness. They come to this place. They had no water. They complain to Moses. And that's always the essential sin, isn't it? It's some version of this. God doesn't know what he's doing. God is not good. God is in it for himself, and he doesn't care about us. That's the essential sin that's behind every sin. God is not good. He's not giving me what I need and what I want. But let's dig a little bit deeper. So what he's saying in this psalm about the Israelites is that after hearing God's voice, they hardened their hearts, and God would not, as the last line of the psalm says, let them enter his rest. So what is the rest that he's talking about? Well, he didn't allow that generation to go into the promised land. You remember? They all died in the wilderness. It was the children of that generation that got to go in the promised land. So God was angry with that generation. They all died in the wilderness. They didn't get, he calls the promised land his rest. They did not get to enter his rest. So in this case, it's the promised land. But the book of Hebrews, what's so interesting is that the book of Hebrews quotes this psalm. And it quotes it a couple of times in chapters 3 and chapters 4. Just hang with me for a second, because i got a point to make. Uh, <clears throat> So he makes it much more than just the promised land. He calls his rest something else. Look at, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned with body, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The Israelites did not get to enter his rest. But look at what it says. The promise of entering his rest still stands. It's talking about a different kind of rest. See, they may not have entered into the promised land, which was the rest, but the book of Hebrews is saying is that there's a rest which is still available to us. There is a promise of rest. If you go further, a little forward in verse 4, he uses the example that after he created the world, God rested from his labors. This is what he's telling us, that we have the ability to rest. And this is what he says in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What's the point? The point is that we can rest from our endless search to find pseudo-saviors because Jesus has done everything necessary for us. And so the call of the psalm is that there's still time. We must listen to his voice. And by the way, this is the third point of what we do in worship, listening to his voice. That's why we have preaching. 
That's why the preaching of the word is so important to hear his voice. So we come and we worship and we shout and make a joyful noise. We bow before him. We confess our sins. We declare that he is God. We are not. And then we hear his word. And it's telling us, it's warning us to listen to him. Listen to him. Let me, let me pull this all together. We've been called to worship God because he's great, because he is our God. And what does that mean for us? Well, let me sum it up this way. There are two sides of the same coin. One side is worship. The other side is surrender. The other side is surrender. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because the warning is there. You will never enter my rest. If you harden your heart. See, that's the point. It's worship and surrender. They're together. We lift him up for who he is. And it's, it's an admitting that he is God and we are not. It is a declaring that we trust his promises to us because he is good and he's a great God and he is our God. It is bowing down before him and recognizing his wonder, his awe, his, his majesty. And it is thanking him for whatever comes into our lives because we know that it is from his good hand. It's a willingness to come to corporate worship and then to be about his business in the workplace at home and when we're out and about when we're with our friends it means a willingness to be witnesses to his saving grace it means remembering morning noon and night that Jesus gave everything for us and he holds us in the palm of his hand it means sitting on his porch in his presence and enjoying his sacrificial love poured out on us. That's the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray.